Psalm 50, that's where we're going to be at this evening, <clears throat> rather than going through James chapter 3, which is talking about the tongue. Um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that next week, but um, <clears throat> this week we're going to be talking about worship. And <clears throat> I've said it before, and maybe you've heard it said too, but that the purpose of created man... Everybody wonders, what's my purpose in life? You know, why did God create me? And obviously, it's, it's, it's other things than this, but this is the foundation for why God created us. This is the, the real reason behind God creating us. And so the purpose of created man is to worship God the creator. <clears throat> the purpose of created man is to worship God the creator. And true joy cannot be obtained unless we, as a created thing, are doing what we have been created to do. And um, that's 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 something that we would agree with. And we've we we all know that through our relationship with Jesus Christ, we found that purpose. <clears throat> then we have received joy in life and 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 life abundantly. But true worship is not what some people think. Even even in Christendom, we can get kind of misguided or off the track of what worship is. And and for example, worship is not the song that that Justin or the worship team leads us in singing. Um, <clears throat> worship is not the amount of money that we place in the offering basket or the little thing out outside there. Um, nor is worship volunteering in a church related ministry, except for the bridge. <laughs> And um, even though these things and others like them may be acts or expressions of worship, which they are, can be, they in and of themselves do not define what true worship is. And um, if you were to do a word study like I did today on the definition of worship, you would come up with many different definitions like this. Worship is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Worship is a religious rite or ceremony constituting a formal expression of reverence for a deity, or worship is to show reverence and adoration for a deity. But I came across uh, a definition which I think best sums up what true biblical worship is, and it's from the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary, which says this. <clears throat> Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. Worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. In light of this, I think we see that true worship is identified by the priority that we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities on who God is in our lives and where God is at on our list of priorities. True worship is, in other words, an, it's a matter of the heart. It's, an, it's, a, it's, it's a, 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 an issue of the heart, a matter of the heart which expresses that extravagant love for God by a lifestyle of holiness. Really what that means is a life lived in submission to what God has said. If you want to know what it means to be holy as God is holy, it means to live your life in submission to the things that God has said. And that's an act of worship. Furthermore, we worship God, guys, because he is God. 
That may seem real simple to say, but it, it, it's often forgot. We worship God because he is God. And our extravagant love and our extreme submission to him flows out of the understanding, the Bible teaches us, that God loved us first, right? And so with that, there's this sense of appreciation that's tied to worship. And it's highly appropriate to show our appreciation and to thank God for all the things that he's done for us. However, true worship is, is, is shallow if it's solely an acknowledgement of God's protection and God's provision. Some would take that and say, say they would classify that as the wealth of God. In other words, meaning what can God do for me and what can God provide for me, right? Psalm 95 verses 5 through 6 says this. It says, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. In other words, our worship must be towards the one who is worthy. Simply because of his identity simply because of who he is as the all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present God, and not just because he's able to meet our needs and answer our prayers. Now, I point these things out in light of Psalm 50, which we're going to read here in a minute, because Psalm 50 has to do with the heart of worship or the heart of a worshiper. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 31 You have to turn there, but in verses 9 through 18, there's this instruction, this command that's given to the priesthood. And and, and in that passage of Scripture, we're told that every seven years, every seventh year, specifically during the Feast of the Tabernacle, which was the last feast in the year, and it was the feast, it was a time when all the Hebrew people would gather together to the temple or to the tabernacle, and they would establish these makeshift huts that they would live in for seven days. And so they would do that every year, but on the seventh year, every seventh year when that would come around, God commanded the priests, said they were obligated to read the law to the people and explain its meaning. They would gather the people at the Feast of, of, of Sokuth or the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles all at the same time before the, the, the Tabernacle of God and the priest would then read the entire law before the congregation and then explain it to him. That was a command given to God. And my, many Bible scholars believe that in conjunction with that or really um, um, they believe that this psalm, Psalm 50, may have been written for such an occasion as that event that was to take place every seven years where the law was read and then explained, considering the emphasis is on godly living here in this psalm. And, and, and godly living that should result uh, uh, from true worship. Godly living that should be the result or come from true worship. And, and not only that, but also because it's the first psalm in all the psalms that we read up to this point that was written by Asaph. And when you do a little bit of study on who Asaph was, you know that he was a Levite priest. Specifically, he was a Levite priest that was appointed by David to lead worship in the tabernacle. And so we see this connection here to these things. And before we read through this psalm, I also want to point out, as by way of summary and kind of give you an outline of where we're going, is that the first six verses, in the six first verses here, really God is speaking as judge. He refers to himself or he's referred to twice as the judge. 
And, 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 and he's a judge, we're told, who's, who's, who's calling upon the whole earth. He's summoning the whole earth to stand before him in, utter to, in order to confront two offenders. And the first offender is, is, is accounted for or spoken to in verses 7 through 15. And, and this first offender is a worshiper or uh, a group of worshipers who may be referred to as a formalist, meaning... They are the person whose worship is nothing more than a religious act of ceremony or ritual, right? I read my Bible, I go to church, I tithe because it's a ritual, it's a duty, it's a ceremony. And, 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 and God addresses the heart of that worshiper and their actions and, and what's going on there. And then the second offender that's called into this courtroom setting, if you will, is accounted for in verses 16 through 21. And this worshiper, a group of worshipers, can, can probably be categorized as a hypocrite. And, and I think it's even more than that, and I'll explain later, but it, for surely it's, it's, it's that, it's the hypocrite. It's, 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 in other words, it's the person who, whose worship is a mask or a disguise, right? to cover their sin or their sinful lifestyle. It's the put on my Sunday best and go to meeting kind of Christian, if you will, where they you know, go before God and act like a godly person one day out of the week and the other six days of the week they're living like, you know? And, and, and that's the idea kind of attached to this. And like I said, I think there's another aspect of that that I want to get to, but that is the foundation for it. And having counted these two groups of people, of worshipers, the psalmist then paints this contrast for us at the very end, verses 22 through 23, with the call to all worshipers to be faithful to God. And the idea that I kind of come to the New Testament aspect of it, which I want to read a little bit later on, is in John chapter 4, where God says, where Jesus said, those who worship in spirit and in truth, right? And so with that, let's read. In Psalm 50, it says, The mighty one, verse 1, God the Lord has spoken and called the earth. From the rising of the sun to its going down. So in other words, does the sun ever really go down? No, I mean, it's, it's a continual thing. All the earth. There's a descriptive way of saying God's calling everybody before him. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very temptuous all around him. And he shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that all that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge." Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountain and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine in all of its fullness. Just in case you didn't get it, God's saying, not just the animals and the beasts, but everything is mine. He says, will I eat the flesh of bulls? And it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's, or drink the, the blood of goats. And, and God's referring to the sacrifice that these people are bringing as if he needs them. Are, you're bringing these sacrifices to me and offering up this flesh because I need it, because I need to eat it? Will I eat it? 
And really what it's a reference to is, is a lot of the pagan cultures believed that in their idol worship, that if they were offer up an animal sacrifice, it would go to the gods and it would sustain them and nurture them and feed them. And, and God's going, I'm not, that's not the point behind this, guys. I don't need your offerings. I don't need your sacrifices. So he says in verse 14, offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenants in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction, and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him, and you have been a partaker with adulterers. You have given your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit, and you sit and speak against your brother, and you slander your own mother, son. These things you have done, and I have kept silent. But you thought that I was altogether like you, and I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now, the contrast in verse 22. Now, consider this, you who forget, who forget God, <coughs> lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, in other words, who lives holy, I will show the salvation of God. Father, I pray that this evening, Lord, you'd help us to understand these things. God, that we would um, use the, the, your word and the truths that are spoken here, God, and the rebukes and the correction to examine our own hearts through the, the, the exposure, through the light of your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that we can see the areas perhaps in our own lives, God, where we've gone astray in having a true heart of worship and that the acts and the deeds and the things that we do, God, maybe there's an ulterior motive. I pray, God, that you expose it, root it out, and God, that we would come to this place, Lord, because we want to be worshipers who worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you go into a courtroom, and I'm pretty sure most of you have been in there. I have two. But if you go in a courtroom today, a judge is called the what? The honorable whoever soever, right? But here in verse 1, as God is kind of put in this position of judge as we see this, that's not what he's referred to, and it's very intentional because his, the titles that he's given here in relationship to him judging is, first of all, in verse 1, he's called the Mighty One, and then if you look again in verse 14, he's also classified or categorized or called the Most High. And this is because God, he's this, you know, have you ever heard somebody go, well, you're, what do you think you are, the judge and the jury? You know, and, and, and what they're saying is, is you can sit there and, and, and judge me, but you can also, you know, cast a pen on me. Who do you think you are? But that's exactly who God is. And, and, and that's what we see by these two titles that he wears, the Mighty One and the Most High. And he's referred to this because he's both judge and jury. And he's both judge and jury because of this, because he knows all about those who are on trial, Right? God sees not as man sees. He knows what's going on in our heart. And we may see someone's act of worship, and, and if we're not believing the best about them, we assume all of these things, that they have some ulterior motives. Maybe we go, well, well, they're just trying to appear really religious and holy. I can't believe they did that. You know, or whatever. But, but God, we don't know. But God does. He sees the intent behind it. He knows the heart. And furthermore, in verse 4, in this setting, he being the mighty one and the most high, we're told that he calls the heavens and the earth into the courtroom at this point to witness 
these proceedings, these accusations, these, these, uh, the, the, the person's crimes, if you will, that are being read before. And, 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 and we know also that when a human judge enters the courtroom, you know, what takes place? The bailiff says what? All rights, right? <clears throat> and, 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 and everybody's called to stand respectfully in order to honor the position that the judge holds, right? It may not be the actual individual that you're, you're honoring or, or bowing down before or standing up in reverence to. It's because you're honoring the position he holds. But here what we see, the cool thing about this psalm is that God's interest in, in entrance into this assembly where he has the people before him and he, his people before him and he calls all the world in as, as witnesses is that according to verse 2, he enters, it says, really by the shining of his perfection, the beauty of his perfection. In addition to that, also according to verse 3, we're told that he enters into the setting with a devouring fire that goes before him. And, and it's, and it, and it's um, and, and, and with these two things, it's a call, just like in a courtroom setting, to all stand, recognize the, 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 the man and the power that he has along with the position, giving honor to that. And, 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 and with these two things, though, that is descriptive of God, we see that the, the demand is for honoring God, not because of the position he holds, but because of who he is, right? Because of who he is. And both of these attributes, and this is where it kind of ties together, if you think about that, the shining of his perfection and the devouring fire in regard to the courtroom setting as God being the judge, both of these attributes of God were also evident in Exodus chapter 19 when God first presented the law there at Mount Sinai to his people, right? We know that Moses, when he was in the presence of God, that God's glory shone forth so much that Moses couldn't look upon him, and yet he came down shiny as well. And not only that, we know that the whole Mount Sinai was consumed by this devouring fire. And it was such a tempest that, that people couldn't even come near. And there's this awesome connection being made there to the giving of the law and now the courtroom in relationship to the person of God and who he is as he comes into the setting. And these attributes are important for us to meditate on, guys, because when we forget about this awesomeness of God, the holiness of God, and the majesty of God who is always with us, as we were talking about on, on Sunday, right? Emmanuel, God who is with us, the promise that he's made to us. When we forget about these attributes of God, you know what happens? We find it easier to sin and to dishonor him. And our worship isn't what it's supposed to be. And so we're reminded of who God is in relationship to this call to worship and to true worship and uh, worshiper of spirit and truth and going, don't forget, he's the beauty of perfection that shines forth and he's a fiery, devouring tempest that goes before him. It's a reverence, it's a respect, it's an awe. And man, when you realize that on a day-to-day -day basis, that brings you to this place where you're like, oh. This call to holiness, this call to righteousness is, is perfect, it's good. And so God himself, he says, is judge here. And like 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 tells us, it says that judgment begins with his own people, right? Always. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We see that even in the book of Revelation. In the first seven chapters of the book of Revelation deal specifically with, right, the church. And then it goes on to the rest of the world. And we know that here. God's dealing with his people. And here in verse 5, we see that they're called saints, 
Saints who have made a covenant with him. In other words, what that simply means, saints means that a people who are set apart exclusively Lord for the Lord because of a holy covenant. I love that. Same in the Old Testament as it is in the New with Jesus Christ. Saints who are set apart because of a holy covenant. Because of a covenant. Yet, as we read on, we see that some of God's people had sinned. Right? When we get into the God class, you wicked people. And he had been long-suffering with them, is what we're also told. Patient, kind, merciful, and silent for a time about this matter, about these things that were going on. And, and sadly, the silence of God, with the silence of God they had, and the long-suffering of God, they had interpreted God's silence as some kind of consent. God thinks you, says, you think I'm like you. But in verse 6, we we're told that it had come to time, it had come time for a reckoning, for the righteousness of God to be declared and for God himself to judge. Yet we see that the purpose of this trial, guys, wasn't to judge in the, in the condemnation kind of sense that we might normally be thinking about, not to condemn a sinner. So don't be condemned this evening, even if, if you find yourself in this spot where you're going, I'm messed up, I'm not in the right place. God, do something here. It's, it's in order to expose our sin, expose our heart, in order to give us this opportunity to make a change, to repent and to return. And so in verse 7, seven we read on, and God comes into this, this situation, and he speaks, and he says, Hear, hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, you are God. And if there was any question to to who God was speaking to. It's really cleared up into these verses, specifically in verse 7 where we just read, where God addresses those as he is speaking to as my people and really as Israel, we know. However, now that's important to establish first because when we read on, when, when God calls them to listen and he begins to speak, we see that even though they are his people, their hearts were not in the place in the right place of worship. Or to put it this way, their heart wasn't in their worship. Have you ever been in that spot? Where you've been serving in a church-related ministry, giving a tithe, singing a song of worship on Sunday morning, or even going to church on a Wednesday night, and your heart just wasn't in the right spot. And you did it for some other reason. And this was a lifestyle that had developed that they are talking about here, and, and not just one incident, because we can all be in that spot where there's an incident, but when you stack them together, what happens? It can get into the place where it doesn't need to be, where it's wrong, and God addresses that. And even though, think about this, look at it here in verse 8, even though their devotion was faithful, as they, according to verse 8, were continually, God saying, you're doing this all the time. It's not just an act of faithfulness or, 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 or continuance that, that makes it right. He says, he says, even though their devotion, their, 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 their act of worship was, was faithful, it was done continually before God, it's clear that the sacrifices that they were making were nothing more than this religious routine. They just did it. They just did it. They just did it. In fact, it looks like they had become like the church in Ephesus, talked about in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, as, as they become like those who had left their first love. In other words, they were worshiping God out of habit or duty and not from the heart. Outwardly, they were doing what the Lord commanded and, 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 and honoring the daily sacrifices, but inwardly, they lacked love for and fellowship with God. And ultimately, they had forgotten that God wanted their hearts. 
before he wanted their sacrifices. In fact, we know this was a problem with the nation of Israel over and over again. Many of the prophets speak about it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, or God spoke through them to his people. And in Isaiah chapter 1, in the opening chapter of, chapter of the book of Isaiah, God speaks in verses 11 through 17, and he says this. He said, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of the fatted of the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And when you come to me, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your increase is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I can't bear your evil assemblies. Your new moons, festivals, and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, that's a graphic picture, right? Lord says, I will hide my eyes from you even if you offer many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. And plead the case of the widow. The point in this, guys, is the sacrifices that God had commanded were, are, were and, and, and important to the spiritual life of the nation. They were. But they did no good for the worshiper unless there, unless there was first faith in their heart. The faith that James talks about, that, you know, that's, that's born forth in deed and action, and also a desire to honor God as their Lord. And to emphasize this, God in verse 9 and 10 pointed out that the very animals that they brought to him, he's all, they belong to me. I don't need them. And so there was no pleasure received by God in simply receiving something that had already belonged to him. Well, thanks, that was mine anyway. I mean, that's what God's really saying here. You know, it's the same, it's the same way with the wrong attitude between, between our own giving. It's like, God's all, it's, it's all mine anyway. I don't care about the giving. I care about the heart behind it. And God didn't need or want the animal. After all, he's not like, like God points this out. It's like, I'm not eating the flesh that's being offered anyway. So what God wanted and desired from his people then and from us today was and is this thanksgiving from our hearts, obedience to his word, prayer. That's what he's talking about here and a desire to honor God in everything. And this is what's simply outlined for us in verses 14 and 15 of, these, of this section. And so as we read on and, and kind of wrap it up, it says in verse 16, it says, but to the wicked God says, what right have you to declare my statutes, my words, my laws, right? Or to take my covenant in your mouth. This is like, this is like God saying to us today as, as Christians, how dare you take the name of Christian and not live as a follower of me, Right? That's basically what he's saying here. In the first message that we had read about in verses 7 through 16, it had clearly been spoken to God's people whose hearts had grown cold, if you'll think about that. But here in verse 16, we see that the second message was addressed to the wicked. Still the Israelites, still God's people, but those Israelites who were still part of the covenant but were awful offering these same sacrifices, however, their declaration of faith, the words that they spoke, as God said here in verse 16... 
<coughs> speaking of the covenant, that declaration of faith, according to the end of verse 16, God says was only in their mouth or on their lips as they were also deliberately disobeying God's laws, God's statutes. And apparently after breaking God's laws, it was even worse because then you go to the tabernacle and do the religious duties, either an attempt to cover up their own sins or even worse, to hide, for sin, hide their sinful ways and outwardly present themselves to be someone other than who they really were. And clearly, as verse 17 declares, God says, you have no respect for my statutes, no respect for my words, for my instructions. And they hated his instructions, God said. And in verses 18 through 20, we're told that they not only consented to the sins of others, but they were willing participants of it. And sometimes we go, well, I'm not doing, at least I'm not doing that. But are we consenting to others who are? This whole idea, again, of this confusion within the church today between tolerance and grace, right? we got to be careful because we think, well, at least I'm not doing it, but if we're making exception for others and not telling them the truth and love, then God says it's the same thing. You're consenting to it. Now, when it says in verse 17 that they hated instruction, it simply means this, to reject an ordered way of life pattern after God's word. And the fact of the matter is, is they were not ignorant of what God had said. That's what we see here in that. That's the conclusion you can come up. They knew. And even worse, they, according to verse 21, where the silence of God is again mentioned, it says that they mistook the, the long-suffering nature of God as, an, as some kind of an approval or condonement of their sinful ways. But in addition to that, to the approval of their sacrifices, it's kind of like... It's kind of like, um, uh, what are the Catholics, what's that word? Where you can go, indulgence, like an indulgence. Some kind of indulgence with God where you can go and commit adultery, but then you can go and offer a bowl, and you're like, good, I'm, I'm good. And God's going, you've mistaken my silence as some kind of acceptance of, of, of this. And in doing so, God declared in verse 30, 21 that they thought that he was altogether like them. In other words, what that simply means is they were creating a God in their own image, making God be something other than who he is, the beauty of perfection, who has a fiery tempest coming before him. And their thinking was so confused that they, that they ended up creating this God in their own image, and in doing so, they had this false confidence that they could sin and get away with it. And the point is, is not only had they forgotten God and forgotten who he is, they did not want him to interfere in their lifestyle. I mean, that's what Paul really writes about in the book of Romans, right? Listen, guys, I'm going to end with this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 15, it says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow or slack in keeping his promises, as some understand slackness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and, and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat, but... 
in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you with wisdom that God gave him. And really quickly, guys, in these last two verses where it says, Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Who offers praise, glory? Whoever offers praise glorifies to me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. And in these last two verses, the writer concisely summarizes the characteristic of a true worshiper. The one that God is seeking, and the Bible tells us God is seeking that. Jesus tells us God is seeking true worshipers. Because in chapter 4 of John, verse 21, Jesus declared, he said to the Samaritan woman, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. And to be a worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth is to have, first of all, a proper fear of the Lord. It is to seek to honor Him through our worship. It is one who obeys God's will and who is able to experience, therefore, then the salvation of the Lord because it's an issue of the heart. And when you combine these characteristics with verses 14 and 15 together, gratitude to God, obedience to prayer, and desire to glorify God, we have this description of worshipers who really, guys, bring joy to the heart of God. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for these reminders and these encouragements, Lord. We do want to be, guys, uh, we want to be your church, Lord, who worships you in spirit and in truth. And Father, you are worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise. And so, Father, may that be reflected in the way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.